Today's episode is a milestone for myself. It's my 50th episode. It's also near the end of the year. And in fact, this will most likely be my last episode unless I happen to get one out before Christmas. But it's at the end of the year, which means one thing. I want to take a look back at the biggest discoveries of 2022. Well, at least the biggest discoveries or things that I find most interesting. Because all of the different websites and all the different authors and journalists and podcasters, they're going to have their list. Well, I have mine. Welcome to Tom SciCast. Let's explore the universe. We're going to push the limits of what we know with our imaginations, some speculation, a little bit of philosophy, the touch of science fiction. And this, as you may know, is a podcast about all things science. Stay curious. So my curiosity for this podcast is going to be focused on what we learned, discovered, and breakthroughs of 2022. There's a lot. This was a fairly epic year. There's no way I could cover all of it. So I'm going to focus on the environmental, what we learned about our health, and then, of course, I'm going to follow up with the astronomy, astrobiology, because that's my really big interest right now. Wait, so is health. So is the environment. So is natural history. Yeah, I like almost everything science. Now let's start with the environmental. And what have we learned this year? And what are some advancements that we've had? Now I'm going to have some straight talk with you here. Not everything in the environment has gone well for us this year. Yeah, there's climate change. There's all these problems we're facing with the environment. But the last thing I want to do is be doom and gloom right here before Christmas. But I will say, we got to be realistic about what's happening. We can't sugarcoat this. So, I'll start with the bad. Let's be realistic. Let's get it over with. Let's deal with it. But then, there's always reason for optimism. There's always reason for hope. And we actually have a lot of things to be hopeful for that have come out of this year. So, let's dive right in. Okay. The bad, the environmental side. Climate change has been on my radar for decades, and I imagine by now it's on most of your radars as well. And it's not looking good. It's getting worse. Our climate is changing fast, really fast. And in fact, you know, we've been modeling like, okay, how fast will the climate respond to the amount of carbon dioxide we're putting into it. And we've been largely wrong in one direction. We usually have underestimated how fast the climate can change, meaning it's changing much faster than we thought possible. And there's reason to think that. Not only are temperatures going up faster than we thought, we're seeing these extreme heat waves, we're seeing extreme storms, We're seeing an intensification of weather patterns. That would be like the mega drought that the Southwest is in right now. We are also seeing intensification of hurricanes. Now, before you go, wait, climate change can't predict a hurricane. You're partly right. When we have a hurricane form in the Atlantic or in the Pacific or anywhere on the world's oceans, we can't say, hey, climate change caused that 
hurricane or that cyclone to occur. But what we can figure out is how much global warming has affected the intensity and strength of that hurricane because hurricanes are dependent on warm water. This means if the oceans are a couple degrees warmer than they normally are and a hurricane spins up really fast, then we can actually calculate the effect of climate change on the intensification of that hurricane. So that much we can do. So when we see hurricanes like Ian or Michael or Sandy or Harvey or Katrina, a lot of these hurricanes became much more intense because the waters are unusually warm due to climate change. So this is a pattern we have continued to see. Not only have we seen the continuation of a mega drought throughout much of the Southwest, luckily where I'm at here in New Mexico, it's gotten a little bit better. But there's other evidence of how fast the climate is changing. Let's go to Greenland. That's in the far north. It's got a monster ice sheet. In some places, it's like two miles thick. We've been studying that ice sheet now for decades. And one of the things they've been trying to do is figure out how fast it's melting. Because when the ice melts and it's on land, that ice goes into the ocean and that causes sea level rise. And of course, as we know, that sea level rise will affect anybody living near the coast. Well, it turns out that the Greenland ice sheet is probably melting almost 10 times faster than we thought. That means that sea level is going to continually rise faster than we thought. And in fact, anybody living along the Atlantic coast, especially in the Miami area, that's just the U.S. I'm not talking about oceanic islands that are already like going underwater during high tide. But in places like southern Florida and in Miami area, they have flooding on a sunny day. And that's because sea levels are rising. Not only that, we can go down to the South Pole, or at least the Antarctic. And the Antarctic has always been a bit of a, of a different beast compared to the Arctic. The Arctic has just been getting warmer and warmer and warmer almost every single year. I mean, much faster than the rest of the world. And we see this also in the loss of the Arctic sea ice. We see this in the loss of the permafrost. But the Antarctic has had much more variability in these ice that forms around the continent. But in February of this year, for the first time, it dipped below 2 million square kilometers, all the way down to 1.92 million square kilometers. That is the lowest extent of Antarctic sea ice that's ever been seen or recorded since we've had modern recording abilities. Let's talk about the driver. What is the driver of climate change? It's adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere from the burning of fossil fuels. In May of 2022, CO2 levels in the atmosphere as measured at Mauna Loa in Hawaii, reached 420 parts per million. That is, of course, the highest it's ever been recorded because it gets higher every year. So guess what? In 2023, that 420 parts per million will be broken just like the record has been broken every single year since we've had the recording station in the late 1950s. That's impressive. 
the last time that CO2 levels were 420 parts per million was over 4 million years ago. And we were in a different time period. We were in the Pliocene. You see, we're in the Holocene now. Anthropocene, really. The geologists just can't determine uh, when we should have the Anthropocene begin and the Holocene end. The Holocene, of course, began about 11,750 years ago. Before that was the Pleistocene for about 2.5 million years. Then you had the Pliocene, which was before the most recent modern ice age. You know, the last time that we were that high, over 4 million years ago, sea levels were nearly 60 feet higher than they are today. And then lastly, because of we think climate change, it would make sense the waters are warmer up near Alaska. Almost 1 billion crabs just disappeared. Just disappeared. They're gone. We don't know what happened to them. The entire fishery just basically collapsed overnight. And of course, people are rushing to go study this. But the most likely cause is climate change disrupting temperature regimes, disrupting food chains and ecosystems. So, yeah, I mean, climate change is marching right ahead. But here's some good news. Let's switch gears. Let's get out of the doom and gloom and look at the good news. Renewables surpassed coal in the U.S. this year in terms of the amount of energy produced. So wind and solar was producing more energy than we get from coal. And in fact, by 2025, well, that's only like two years from now. Well, just over two years, right? We're just at the end of 2022. We might actually have renewable energy sources surpass coal globally. Now, I just have to do a quick reality check here. Our world population is growing. We are using more energy. So even though renewables have surpassed coal, coal consumption still continues to grow and set its own record high in 2022. But fortunately, to meet our energy demands, we are also rapidly expanding renewable resources. So that's good news. Here's some more good news in the environment. You know, to feed 8 billion people, that's right, we, we got 8 billion people on the planet as of November of this year. But to feed them, we have to grow crops efficiently. We have continually improved crop efficiency for decades. And guess what? We now have soybeans that have been genetically engineered to improve their yield by at least 20%. And the scientists that created this they think they might even bump it up to 50%. You're asking, wait, how in the world did you increase yield by that much? That is a lot. And what they did is they tweaked photosynthesis. Now, I teach photosynthesis in my classes, and I'm like, now how in the world did you tweak photosynthesis to make it 20% more efficient? Well, here's how they did it. These soybeans are actually a transgenic organism. They've got about three genes in them from fern trees, or just ferns. I was just in Puerto Rico, so I was looking at fern trees. But they come from ferns. Here's how it works. It's really cool. You see, as plants are in direct sunlight, they actually are getting almost too much energy for photosynthesis. So they have to have mechanisms to dissipate that extra energy 
or they can be damaged. But as the sun moves across the sky, that changes the angle of light on these plants. And they can also go from being in full sunlight to being in shade. And when they're planted in a, in a field, this could happen pretty fast. So plants have to switch from being in full sunlight to being in the shade. So there's all these different mechanisms that have to change around from dissipating the heat, dissipating all the extra energy to prevent them from being damaged, to, wait, we have way less energy now. Now we have to start upregulating all these other genes. So, to improve the efficiency, these other genes from a fern, they allow the soybeans to rapidly switch their mechanisms from being in full sunlight to being in shade and still maintain optimal rates of photosynthesis depending on the amount of light they're getting. That's pretty brilliant if you ask me. So here we go. We got another transgenic organism, another type of GMO. And as you know, I'm very pro-GMO because they help solve our problems. So by improving the crop yields by 20%, maybe more, this means that we can get a lot more food from our soybeans from the same amount of water and basically the same amount of effort that we put into growing our crops. So once again, our crop yields are being improved to help feed a growing population. So this is good for the environment to improve our crop yields. Because believe it or not, everything we do is going to impact the environment. We cannot not impact the environment. So by improving crop yields, we can feed more people with less impact. And now we have another example of GMOs helping to solve the world's problems. Well, there's more in the environment. I don't know if you heard, but there was a rather large volcano that blew up. It began you know, December 20th, 2021. I know it started last year, but it did not peak until the second week of January, about January 15th, 2022. This is the biggest eruption since 1991 when Mount Pinatubo blew up. And it's the most powerful explosion since 1883 from the Krakatoa explosion. Krakatoa, I just love that one. That was a pretty massive explosion. It could be heard like a thousand miles away. And both of these sent shockwaves around the entire planet. And it injected millions of tons of water into the stratosphere. That's like 35 miles high. You know, that's well above where airplanes fly. And then all of that water may actually warm the planet a little bit over the next one to three years. We don't really know how much, and the amount it would warm is probably like 0.05 degrees Celsius, which is less than the amount of CO2 that will be released in the next year through the burning of fossil fuels. Now, this next one is not really the environment, but it kind of is. It's, it's biology. It's about fungus. Fungus, you know, the more you learn about something, just the more interesting they are. And fungus, I know, we, we have fungus everywhere. You know, you don't want it growing in your refrigerator, but we like looking at fungus out in the woods. Well, it turns out that these fungus might have electrical communication between them. They can send and receive signals in their mycelia network. 
Wait, I know, that sounds like something from Star Trek Discovery. Let's not get into that one right now. But they have this mycelial network. This is their hyphae, little root-like structures, but much smaller. They're like down to the cell size. And it turns out that they're sending these electrical signals back and forth. They can say hi to each other. They can say, hey, I'm not in the wood anymore. I'm at a rock. And it turns out that these patterns of signaling might function like words and speech. And according to the scientists that studied this and their preliminary results, they might have up to about 50 words. And they use about 15 to 20 of them the most. And the hyphae act like neurons passing these electrical signals back and forth to each other. Now, this is pretty revolutionary. This is pretty groundbreaking to think that they could do that. As you can imagine, not everyone is convinced. And some scientists are saying, wait, you could just be looking at nutrient input into the hyphae. Might give you a similar signal. So we need more studies to confirm these reports. But that is still really cool. I wouldn't put it past them. Basically, a neuron sends a signal down its long part of it called the axon by depolarizing the cell. It takes all these sodium ions that are typically on the outside and they're positively charged. When you reach a threshold, all these little gates open up, the sodium ions flood into the cell, into the axon of the neuron, it depolarizes it so it flips from being negative on the inside to positive on the inside. And then that, that electrical signal goes down the axon and that carries a signal. So I don't think that it'd be impossible for a hyphae to do this. We know that every single cell membrane maintains an electrochemical gradient. They're pumping sodium out, moving potassium in, and uh, plants move a lot of protons out. I don't really know what fungus do, but if they had any mechanism of really depolarizing their hyphae and sending the electrical signals down it, why not? But I agree. We need, we need more con confirmation on this. But that's, of course, the beautiful thing about science. If these guys discovered it, then we should be able to repeat that again. Something else that we discovered that might be really interesting with rather large implications for some astrobiology and finding life beyond our own planet. And it starts with a simple question, you know, what's, what's the oldest living organism on the planet? Living. I mean, what does it mean to even be alive, right? Check this one out. Scientists report the discovery of a potentially 830 million year old microorganisms living in halite. Halite is a salt crystal. They might still be alive, although they were pretty vague on whether or not those cells could be alive. They didn't confirm that they were alive. They also did not confirm that they weren't alive. That's pretty wild. 830 million years. I admit, I am very, very skeptical on how a cell could survive for nearly a billion years trapped in a salt crystal in a little vein of water. Well, it turns out that the oldest confirmed prokaryote that I could find was also from a halite near the end of the Permian. That's the Permian. That's before dinosaurs existed. That was before the Great Dying. That was 252 million years ago. 
So something about these halides, they just allow for this you know, exceptional preservation of these cells. And those from the Permian, they were hydrated and they kind of came back to life. Now, I don't think that those cells are permanently dormant either. Even if they're forming a spore or going into what we would consider a dormancy, they still have to maintain some level of metabolism, some level of metabolic activity to help maintain and repair their DNA. Because over time, the DNA will degrade and it will become highly mutated just from random radiation. So somehow, these organisms can eke out a living. They're getting some form of energy, maybe from sucrose or something like that, or nearby surrounding cells, that's giving them just enough to maintain their DNA over incredibly long periods of time. So think about this. You look at Mars today. Mars is a cold, dry planet, but it does have water. It's got water at the poles, and it's got water frozen pretty close underground. But it also had water on its surface. So if life could survive for hundreds of millions of years in a halite crystal, then life might still be eking out some living trapped in tiny little veins of fluids in halite crystals just under Mars' surface. So to me, that is a really interesting finding. Even if they discover that those cells in that 830 million year old halite are actually not alive, they are still incredibly well preserved, which means they might have actually lived for hundreds of millions of years and only died, whatever that means, in the last hundred million years. And we know that Mars, hundreds of millions of years ago, was a different place than it is today. Well, that's the environmental stories that I came up with over the year. I'm sure there were some others as well, but to me, those were some of the big ones. Next, let's talk about some of the health-related advances we made. It's been a big year in health as well, and there's been a lot of breakthroughs, especially with cancer and longevity. When it comes to the breakthroughs in these cancer treatments, we could rapidly go down the rabbit hole. I'm going to avoid doing that and just talk about them in broad strokes. Okay, a few years ago, there's this rare tree in the tropics of northern Australia called a brushwood tree, and its berries have a cancer drug. Yeah, imagine that, another cancer drug. It's like Taxol from a California yew tree. It's called Tiglate or Tiglanol. I hope I pronounced that correctly, but I'm, I'm sure I didn't. I have never heard it said, and I tried to look it up on the web how to say it. So I apologize if I slaughtered its name. But Tiglate, it promotes a localized immune response to tumors, and it ultimately causes the, the, the blood vessels going into the tumor to break apart, and it dies. And in these early trials, especially in dogs, I mean, it was like 95% effective. It was very, very effective. And fortunately, one of the breakthroughs is, is that these researchers from Stanford learned how to synthesize tiglate, tiglinol, in the lab. 
So now it, uh, it's easier to make. We don't have to extract it from this tree from Northern Australia. We can now make it in the lab. And because of its high success rate and relative safety, it's gonna go into trials into humans very, very soon. So that's exciting. One more drug to help treat cancer. And in this case, it, it was very successful. Now, one of the holy grails of treating cancers has been to do basically a personalized cancer treatment. Now, what I mean by that is cancer is a catch-all statement. It's a, it's a catch-all term for a, a lot of different diseases. But we can define cancer overall as cells that become damaged. And they can become damaged from mutations, they can lose their identity through loss or changes in epigenetic inheritance. And then all of these things lead to damage in the cells. They escape the cell cycle. And once that happens, they can begin to replicate, grow and divide uncontrollably. And that causes cancer. As an example of how complicated cancer is, we can use breast cancer. You could take two people with a similar diagnosis of the same stage of breast cancer. Six months later, one patient is dead, the other is alive, and the other goes on to live for another 30 years. Why is that? Why does one person have a much poorer prognosis than the other one? And that comes down to the different genes that are involved that lead to cancer. One reason is you produce too many receptors receiving the growth factor, which gives that cell a very strong signal to grow. So if your cell does become cancerous, most treatments won't work on it because it's gonna be trying to grow, grow and divide as fast as it can. Whereas another type of breast cancer might be caused by mutation that prevents the DNA from being repaired. So as you go through the cell cycle, your cells reproduce, through mitosis, then they replicate their DNA. But before they go into replicating their DNA, there's a checkpoint. So you finish replicating, you got your daughter cells, you go through this checkpoint and the cell goes, okay, your DNA looks good. And when you get the signal to grow, you can transition into the S phase where you can replicate your DNA, then go into G phase. And then if you get the rest of your signals and everything is going well, then you can enter into mitosis. Well, there's a mutation that prevents cells from being able to recognize damage to their DNA or repair it. So rather than kicking the cell out of the cell cycle, the cell will continue to grow and divide while at the same time, the mutations add up. So there you have it. There's breast cancer, which we would identify as a type of cancer, but there are different causes of those breast cancers. There's even ones that are sensitive to different types of hormones. So that's why cancer is really complicated. You can have one cancer, you can have many different causes. So one of the holy grails of cancer is immunotherapy, personalized cancer treatments. The idea here is to take your cancer, sequence it, and to figure out the causes of that particular cancer. If it's breast cancer, is it the HER2 gene? That's the one that causes the aggressive growth. Is it a BRCA gene? That's one of the ones in the cell checkpoint. 
then once we figure out your cancer, what makes it unique, and also how it's different from your cells, we can then program your immune system to target those cancer cells specifically. And then not only that, because we have an acquired immune system, once you program your cells to recognize that particular type of cancer, if it pops up again, then your immune system would recognize it and then continually attack it. Immunotherapy has worked well in some people. It has failed completely in others. And one of the big breakthroughs in immunotherapy is understanding why it doesn't work in a lot of patients. I don't remember the exact number, but it's like half of them. Fortunately for those people, the breakthrough is understanding why it doesn't work for them. Because once we figure out why it's not working, then we can maybe tweak it to make it work. So to me, this is exciting, you know, getting these breakthrough in a new cancer treatment drug, while also getting closer to the immunotherapy with personalized cancer treatments. We are learning a lot, and we are learning a lot rapidly. And I'm going to come back to why I'm also very optimistic about why we might actually one day beat cancer. I know. We've been saying this since the war on cancer almost 50 years ago. Why am I so optimistic today? Hold on to that thought because I'm going to come back to it. But when it comes to cancer, once again, we realize that nearly 44% of all cancers are largely preventable. It's what you do. How much do you smoke? How much are you exposed to bad air? How much alcohol do you drink? And rates of obesity. All of these factors from smoking, alcohol, being overweight, lead to higher rates of largely preventable cancer. Well, sadly, we still have work to do on these preventable cancers. But the good news is, a lot of them are largely preventable by small lifestyle changes. One of the things I always say, just cut back on calories a little bit, walk a little bit more, you don't have to go to the gym, and you don't have to eat broccoli every day to be super healthy, although that helps. But just getting up at regular intervals and walking around and try to improve the speed at which you walk. A step counter for me is really helpful. It might help you, it might not, but it's one thing that works for me. So this lets me segue into some really promising things that we're discovering on longevity. I know, I think about longevity a lot. I'm aging, I'm, I'm approaching 50 rapidly. I have always been active, but I've noticed changes in my body. So I wanna live a very long life, as long as I can and as healthy and as active as I can. So not just the amount of time that I live, but also the quality of time. I know a couple, they're in their 70s. One of them has enormous amounts of energy. Just goes and goes and goes, always happy to go do stuff. Can walk, you know, five miles, not a problem. The other partner is two months older and can barely get out of his chair. Why is that? I don't want to be the one that can barely get out of my chair in my 70s. I want to be the one walking around. So how can we extend not only the length of our lives, but also the quality? A fad diet that's been around for a while, there's lots of fads 
but one of them has been the calorie restriction diet and whether or not that actually works. We've seen it extend the life of mice, worms, and fruit flies by like 20% when you restrict their calories. That's a lot. I would love to extend my life by 20%. But the question is, does it work in humans? And the answer is apparently yes, it does work. Now, calorie restriction does not mean starving yourself every day all the time. You still have to have proper nutrition. But what it means is eat a little bit less. Get the mini blizzard if you have to have a blizzard. Don't get the medium one. I did that today. It was awful. Hurt my stomach. I like blizzards. I have to cut more of them out. When you get dinner, only get one serving. You don't need two or three servings. Cut back on the calories a little bit. One way that works for me that also improves longevity is what we call intermittent fasting. So I do not eat before 10 a.m. Sometimes I go till noon or even one o'clock. And then I will stop eating at 6 p.m. So I only eat between six and eight hours in a day. The other, you know, 16 to 18 hours, I don't eat. I drink plenty of fluids, you know, tea and water, but, and diet soda, I know. I got to cut the diet soda out. I'm working on it. I'm getting there. But the point is, is that intermittent fasting also helps me restrict calories because I don't go for that snack late at night or before I go to bed. I don't eat a big breakfast. I know you've probably heard how important a breakfast is. Well, you know what? I've been able to go from I wake up, I reach for a Pop-Tart or whatever I'm grabbing groggy-eyed in the morning to I'm fine. I can actually go to class. I can go lecture for a couple hours, go to the gym, then go eat at like noon. I've been doing this for 2022 and I lost 20 pounds this year doing it. Now, it doesn't work for everybody, but this helped me. It just helped me cut back on my calories. I've retrained my body and my hormonal cycles that I'm not starving in the morning. And if you're interested in learning more about the calorie restriction diet and how uh, intermittent fasting works, I strongly urge you to go listen to Jeffrey Sinclair's podcast on Lifespan. It's great. I mean, it convinced me to do this intermittent fasting, which by default helped me restrict my calories. I lost weight and I'll share some stuff with you. I don't want to overshare, but back in April, my cholesterol was a little high. My triglycerides were not where they needed to be. And uh, that's not good, you know, because that leads to vascular disease. And I'm sitting here going, well, you know, I, I still work out. I, I do a little bit of hiking here and there. I was overweight. I weighed 190 pounds. So once I started making these lifestyle changes, here it is in December, I'm 170 pounds. And you know I didn't have to like really change a lot of my whole life. I still eat blizzards about once a week. I stop by Dairy Queen and get a blizzard and I still lost 20 pounds. Wait, am I sounding like an infomercial? I apologize. It's just that all of the research that's come out in the last year is showing that these calorie restriction diet, intermittent fasting really works. Not only have we done the experiments on lab animals, 
and looking at large data sets of humans all showing the similar thing. It's not just a correlation. One of the things that we're learning is how a calorie restriction diet and intermittent fasting, how these are making major changes right down at the cellular level and how our genes are expressed and how that is having our cells live longer, how it's making our bodies live longer and healthier lives. And like I said, Jeffrey Sinclair, he really gets into how these things work. It's not something I want to get in here other than it has been confirmed that they do work and we are starting to really understand why. Wait, hold on. There's more to this story. I've always been a big advocate of studying lots of animals, of just going out into the world and doing basic science, basic exploratory science. How long can a lobster live? How about a jellyfish? How long can they live? Maybe forever. It turns out that these jellyfish are kind of biologically immortal. Now, they're not like Lorien from Babylon 5 where they're billions of years old. But check this out. These jellyfish are biologically immortal because their cells don't senesce like ours. Neither do lobsters. Their cells don't senesce. Which means they don't grow old. They don't do what our cells are doing. You see, I can take a cell from a 10-year-old, a 30-year-old, a 50-year-old, a 70-year-old, and even a 90-year-old, and we can see a progression of changes in these cells and identify basically how old that person is. It's called the epigenetic theory of aging, that our cells go through these changes. Well, jellyfish don't go through them. They have all of these mechanisms of rejuvenating. So they're biologically immortal, and we finally made some breakthroughs and how those molecular mechanisms work. And of course, the idea here is, can we apply them to us? Can we get ourselves to continually rejuvenate so that we don't grow old? Yeah, I know, there's a lot of implications to that one. Could you imagine humans living 100, 200, 300, 400, 1,000 years? Yeah, there's a lot to think about that. That's a lot of philosophy right there, a lot of speculation. We'll have to come back to that in another podcast. Moving on from aging and cancer, here's a cool one. They got brain cells to grow in a lab and the brain cells all grew together and they learned how to play a video game. I think Pong. Wow, that's crazy. Here's something else we learned. If you've ever known a loved one that sat by somebody in a coma and they talked to them, and they always said it can't hurt. Now we know it definitely cannot hurt. It was discovered this year that some people in comas can actually hear you. They just can't respond. So if you have a loved one in a coma, by all means, go talk to them because they might be able to hear you. And then lastly, with this health-related one, and this is more than health-related. This is going to affect every aspect of our life. AI continues to improve. It continues to get better. 
And this goes back to why I'm very optimistic about our ability to treat cancer. Earlier this year, AlphaFold figured out the entire protein universe. I know, that's crazy talk. It was able to predict the three-dimensional structure of every protein just by knowing a sequence of amino acids. And if we know the sequence of amino acids, we know the sequence of RNA or DNA. That's the entire protein universe. We did that. We figured it out. Determining the structure of a protein in the past was fairly labor-intensive. You hire a postdoc or get a graduate student to go spend their you know, three or four years figuring out this one protein. And if that protein happened to be embedded in a cellular membrane, good luck with that. Because the minute you separate the protein from the membrane, it would just fall apart. Or you might not have a lot of that protein. But now this AI figured it out and they're ground truthing it. They're going in there and checking out to make sure it's okay. And it's been really, really accurate. So you combine this ability to figure out what every protein is doing. That's going to revolutionize medicine. Okay, we got this cancer. We can now sequence our, the genes of the cancer very quickly. We can look for unique proteins. We can create a new protein in the lab very quickly to reprogram your immune system to go attack that particular cancer. And then, of course, your immune system can remember that and attack that cancer if it comes back. So this AI in the next few years is going to revolutionize medicine and our ability to come up with new vaccines, to treat viral infections, to treat cancer. And we can even learn how to extend our lives and extend the quality of our lives. So I can imagine that as I go into my 60s, what we're going to learn in the next decade is going to be revolutionary. So we're laying the groundwork for a lot of really big changes coming up in the 2020s. So I'm very excited about this. So yeah, AI is going to have a huge impact on our lives. I just hope we don't have something like Skynet that decides humans are a plague on the world and it needs to eradicate us. I hope that doesn't happen. I will say that, you know, I'm not sure we are quite ready for what's coming with AI. It's so revolutionary. It's gaining abilities so fast that is outstripping our our ability to figure out what to do with it, how to limit it, and how much it's going to affect us. I can tell you, not only am I excited about it, I'm also scared, and it's going to complicate my life a little bit. You see, I teach, and I often give my students writing assignments. And if you haven't heard, there's a new AI program out there called ChatGTP that can come up and, you know, you query it, you give it a couple questions, and it gives you an answer. It can write sci-fi novels, it can write short answers, it can carry in a dialogue with you. So I can imagine in the next year or so, I give a writing assignment, you know, take-home test. You know, and that test might be, you know, how did the circulatory system and vertebrates allow them to grow large? Tyrannosaurus rex, brontosaurus, and, you know, blue whales. And these are huge organisms. Why did they get so big? Well, it comes down to our closed circulatory system and a four-chambered heart. That's a fun topic for another day. 
But I could imagine that some student goes, you know, I just don't feel like looking this up. They log into ChatGTP. They query the question. ChatGTP gives out a, you know, a couple paragraphs on this. They go to their notes. Ah, they look at it. That's good enough. Go to the Wikipedia. And that's good enough. And they hand in an assignment that took them five minutes, maybe 10. And I was hoping that they would spend, you know, maybe 30 minutes on this really kind of complex question. So I'm very concerned as a teacher that any writing assignment we give a student to go write at home, that AI could just write it for them. And honestly, I would have a hard time knowing. Now, sometimes I can usually pick out students by their writing styles and the way they write. You know, there's, there's some tells with a lot of, actually a lot of students. I can usually tell who they are. But with the AI, if it's a new student, I've never seen it. I have no way of knowing who wrote it. And the problem is, is that I actually Google my test questions to make sure that they don't pop up on Quizlet or Chegg or some other cheating, oh wait, study site? Yeah, I hate those sites. I know students, you guys love them, but as a teacher, ugh. I have to rewrite my questions every semester to stay ahead of it. And now, I'm not so sure I can stay ahead of it anymore. And the problem is, is a student that spends an hour and a half studying a question to write this really beautiful essay, now gets an A, or maybe an A minus, I, I, you know, I'm grading them all the same. And the student that goes to chat GPT, turns it in and gets an A. They did five minutes and their student spends an hour. One student remembers it, the other one doesn't know anything. So I'm, I'm a little concerned here. It's cool. I like the, the sci-fi factor of it, the, the technology factor of it. But I, I am concerned that AI is going to make it easy on us where we don't have to engage our brains. Now, AI can be used for more purposes than coming up with answers to a take-home test or finding the entire protein universe. AI can also be used in astronomy. We can use it to search for supernovas. We can use it to search for exoplanets, galaxies. So it's also going to help revolutionize astronomy as well. And in fact, in 2022 has been a pretty big year for astronomy. I know what you're thinking. We're going to get to it. Just hold on. One, we can move an asteroid. That is great. DART hit Dimorphos on September 26, changed its orbit by 32 minutes. That might not sound like a lot, but to be considered successful, all they wanted was a 73-second change. That would have been considered successful. They got 32 minutes. This is great news for longevity of humans as a species because eventually a large meteor will hit this planet. We now have the ability to detect it, and we have just about got the ability to move it away from us so it doesn't hit us. Also, speaking of astronomy, UAPs are in the news this year. Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon. I definitely like that name better than UFO. I was a slowcomer to it. I didn't like it at first. UFO means it's a flying object. A UAP means it's an aerial phenomenon. It's a phenomenon. We don't know what it is. 
There's been congressional hearings on it, or the military is putting out all this stuff. They're declassifying the information. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I doubt very seriously that it's aliens, but I am glad to see that these things that we, we can't identify, that we're bringing the weight of science to it. We're bringing it out of the fringe and applying science. Can we observe it? Can we measure it? Can we test for it? Because there's clearly things happening. People are seeing something. And, you know, I suppose that it could be our own military testing out new things on our own pilots without them knowing about it and sitting back laughing that everybody's going, oh, they think they're seeing UFOs and all we're doing is showing them a plasma ball. So, like I said, I really, really doubt it's aliens visiting our planet. I mean, you can't rule it out, but that gets into some speculation. Hey, it's fun to speculate. But to quote Carl Sagan, an extraordinary claim requires extraordinary evidence. I've seen the evidence. It's not extraordinary. Just because I don't know what it is doesn't make it extraordinary. Of course, unless like, you know, this giant flying saucer flies over my house and parks itself over Albuquerque, then I'll be like, oh yeah, there, there's, a, there's aliens. And speaking of aliens, we haven't found any yet, but the number of confirmed exoplanets exceeded 5,000 for the first time this year. And one planet, TOI 1452b, is about the size of the Earth, 100 light years away, and it might have a large ocean on its surface. So that's cool. We're continually finding rocky planets the size of Earth and larger, one and a half times the size, called a super Earth, in habitable zones with potential water. Now hold on, because I'm going to come back to those exoplanets in a second. But I want to come closer to us. Let's get to Mars. This last semester, I taught a class in astrobiology. And one of the things when looking for life, you look for the liquid water. Is there liquid water? You also need geological activity as well. When I started in September talking about Mars, my take on it from the latest scientific data was that it was unlikely there was liquid water on Mars. I know there was some in 2018 they thought they had underneath the polar ice caps. And there's some ideas that it might be flowing on the surface currently. The ones flowing on the surface could just be rock flows. The one under the ice caps they thought could be just frozen clays, giving a signal that looked like liquid water. Right after I said, you know what, I really don't think that there's liquid water on Mars. It's probably all frozen. Mars just doesn't have the geological activity to warm anything near the crust enough for liquid water. So it's all frozen. There might be tiny little veins like we saw in those halite crystals. So that's beneficial. But in May, there was a large Mars quake. It was like almost a five on the Richter scale. And what it's showing is that there's geologically activity. It's, it's still active and it's still warm. That means there could be liquid water and aquifers greatly increasing the possibility of life on Mars. Not only that, a reanalysis of the polar ice cap showed that the ice dips right where you see the, the signal, the radar signal for a lake underneath the ice, just like we see in Antarctica. 
So the possibility of liquid water on Mars has just gone up big time. And the reason why the geological activity is also important is because if it's warm underneath the ice cap, then we could have liquid water there. So that is awesome. And we also know that Mars clearly had a liquid on its surface in the past, including in Jezero Crater. So not only are we finding like there was liquid water everywhere, we're also finding methane in the atmosphere, and we're finding organic molecules in the rocks of Mars. So we have not confirmed a life on Mars, but there is growing evidence that life could have been possible in the past and could still be eking out a living today. So that's exciting. Now, for one of the greatest things that happened this year, in addition to the Alpha Fold, which is, you know, wow, that's amazing. We launched, finally, the James Webb Space Telescope. I mean, I watched it on Christmas Day. I don't really watch rocket launches, but I watched this one. And they inserted it perfectly into its orbit or into a Grange point. It's going to be around for uh, hopefully 10 years. Within a few short months, we started getting images. And it is living up to its expectations. And in fact, it's exceeding them in many ways. And we are having to rethink much of what we thought we knew about the universe. First, one of the iconic images that will definitely come from a James Webb is its first deep field view. Now, its deep field view is not the first. Hubble's done several. It did one in the late 90s and one again in the aughts. And that was the ultra deep field view. But James Webb is much larger. It did in 12 hours what took the Hubble nearly 11 days to do. And it peered further and further back in time. One of the biggest things that the James Webb has discovered already, I mean, it was just launched this year, and already we have seen galaxies going back 13.4 billion light years. We're seeing lots of galaxies already formed with well-developed disks when the universe was only 400 million years old. That's, I just get so excited. We're having to rethink about galaxy formation in the beginning of the universe. So, yeah, I mean, this, this space telescope is going to continue to just change the way we see the universe, change what we know about it. One of the other goals of the James Webb is to peer at the atmospheres of exoplanets. Now, it hasn't done a lot yet, but the preliminary studies where they do look at some of the exoplanets is that it's beating its expectations for measuring what's in an atmosphere of an exoplanet. Now, just remember, an exoplanet is beyond our solar system. These are planets orbiting other stars, or there could be free-floating ones as well. This is exciting because we could potentially see biosignatures in the exoplanet. So, for example, if you find a rocky planet orbiting in the habitable zone of a star, I know the habitable zone gets complicated, but let's simplify it here, in the habitable zone, and it's got 20% you know, oxygen, guess what? You've got a smoking gun for photosynthesis. 
That's a biosignature of life. When looking back at this entire year, there's been some very remarkable breakthroughs. AI with AlphaFold. AI once again with ChatGPT. Scary. It's hard to rank one, two, three, but the other really big one, of course, is the James Webb Space Telescope. Some of us have been waiting for over a decade for this telescope to get launched. It's cost nearly $10 billion and it's delivering. But one of the things that I really like about the James Webb and why to me it's so important is because we did that. We spent decades, billions of dollars to build a space telescope out of curiosity so we could literally explore the universe. And this is what this podcast is all about, exploring the universe from atoms and cells and life on our planet to life elsewhere in the universe and everything science. It's about curiosity wanting us to explore and thinking about it. And the James Webb is like this ultimate just statement of, hey, humanity is still curious. We still want to explore the universe and we are willing to invest into doing that. And to me, that is so important, that curiosity. And I know that critics, they feel that we could have spent that money on improving humans. But you know what? My response to that is satisfying our curiosity, understanding our place in the universe, that is helping people. And the other thing that we forget, yeah, it cost $10 billion. Guess what? That paid for a lot of salaries for a lot of engineers and employed a lot of people. So that's a good thing. And the drive to do something like the James Webb Space Telescope, it's different. It's different than treating cancer, finding cures for cancer, understanding how we can live longer, or improving crop yields and soybeans. Those directly benefit us. And there's also money to be made in that. But not the James Webb. It's that statement. We are going to do this, build this machine, spend decades and billions of dollars to satisfy our curiosity. And that gives me a lot of hope. A lot. That humanity will continue to improve. And we will not just focus inwardly on ourselves that we will continue to ask these questions driven by our curiosity. So to me, personally, that's why the James Webb Space Telescope is the biggest event of 2022 from a scientific point of view. Even though AlphaFold figured out like 200 million proteins that will probably one day keep me living, you know, decades longer, right? And I'll be, you know, probably 90 with a 60-year-old body going, oh man, that, yeah. You know, remember when I said James Webb is alpha fold? But I digress. James Webb, really. Wow, we did that. What a great year in 2022. So I will return the beginning of 2023 with episode 51. So in the meantime, hit me up on Facebook, Tom Sidecast. Let me know what you think of the, uh, of this episode. Let me know what you think are your most important discoveries of the year. What, what did you find interesting? Let's talk about that and share it. And I'll uh, we can talk about it when I get back. 
at the beginning of 2023. And we'll start with episode 51. Until next time, stay curious.